This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is episode 37 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 26th of September. And Leon, what's on the list for this week? Well, we're starting off with a great interview with Don Mage. He's the CEO of Domino's Pizza in Australia. And he's going to be talking to us all about their strategy, how they came from nowhere and now they're dominating the market. You're what is it? They even opened up in Japan. That's right. That's right. So he's going to be talking to us all about this strategy. And then, uh, interestingly enough, we're going to have a chat with economist Francis Grain. He's going to be talking to us all about the next dangerous hotspot for the global economy, which is China's claim on the South China Sea. But anyway, let's start it off with Don Mage. Don Mage, Domino's has enjoyed spectacular profits lately, and you've expanded in Japan. Mm-hmm. And that's paying off handsomely. Yes. What's driving it? What's what's behind it? I think our business model of the way that we review the brand, the way that we approach the brand with technology, um, with the way that we, you know, we're entrepreneurs with a business model rather than that we're Japanese, Australian, American, or any other culture. And so when we go into a business where we're looking at. Um, you know what what has been missed in that market and if we can uncover a, enough of a competitive advantage then it's something we should do and that's what we've done recently in Japan we did that previously in Europe and uh, it's our history in Australia so what things did you find missing that you filled well one of the things about Japan is that it was actually the pizza market was actually established nearly 30 years ago by Domino's but it was in a different era when rents were really high um, and so the Domino's model back in those days was 100% delivery and we put the stores in the basements basically of high-rise buildings that could afford the rent but times have moved on Japan's had 15 years of deflation rents are now cheaper than they are in Brisbane or Melbourne and um, in fact you know 40% less um, labor costs are nearly half what they are in Australia um, and yet the price of pizza is still quite high. So what's happened is that we've been able to take advantage of the changing landscape and we're moving the stalls from basically the garages of Japan to the high street and and that's allowing us to get 30, 40, 50% carry out business, which is a new business for us. Domino's has done a lot of pioneering with online ordering and delivery and stuff like that. Do you find the Japanese uh, attachment to their smartphones helpful? Absolutely. And in fact, they were already doing a really good job in Japan with smartphone devices. Though Japan was one of the pioneers with the original smartphone thinking, which was a Docomo model that's now been replaced by um, iOS being the iPhone and Android. But they are early adapters of technology. Before we even arrived, half our business was already online. But we are taking it to another level. We're moving to an HTML5 platform by Christmas, which is the new internet, and you know, lifting up all of our smartphone exposure. And, uh, and we're going to be upgrading our point of sale system there to equal what we have in the rest of our company um, throughout next year. So now, I, be- I believe sixty percent of your sales come from online. Is that right? That's in Australia. That's correct. Yeah, just around sixty percent. Some stores are even higher. We have stores um, here in Melbourne that would be eighty percent of their business would be online. What's involved in that? I mean, that is a completely different model, isn't it? Because uh, with online sales, you're actually dealing with individuals rather than a mass market proposition. So how different is that? It's really different um, in a number of areas. Um, you know, we, we actually changed the infrastructure a lot of our stores from order takers and telephones to now we're just coming straight online to the, uh, to, you know, straight onto the make line monitor. So it's much more efficient for us. We make less mistakes because you took your own order. Uh, we get a 20% higher ticket because you're now seeing what you want to buy rather than thinking about what you might want to buy much, much more effectively. And we market one-on-one. You're exactly right. You know, we're one of Australia's largest social media uh, businesses. You know, we've got over a million uh, Facebook 
Facebook fans. Um, we're first on Snapchat. We're involved in Instagram, Twitter, and so on. So you know, we we talk to the customer, engage with customers, and and the thing that's really changed for us since the internet is that we've really become a company that listens more and more to people. It's a two-way conversation. Hence, our latest thing in Australia, which is called Pizza Mogul. Tell us about Pizza Mogul. So, Pizza Mogul is an idea where the customer um, can build their own pizza on our Pizza Chef platform, which means they visually build their own pizza. They can name their own pizza. And just to give you an idea, with our technology, you can build over 1.4 million different versions of our pizza. And then it's exponential how you can name a pizza because in the end, you can name somebody else the same pizza. Um, and then you get to share it by marketing it through any sort of social network, and then we pay you uh, between $0.25 and $3.25 for every pizza you sell. So in the first few weeks, we had uh, one young lady who's earned over $7,500 by just selling her favorite pizzas, and uh, somebody else was $6,500, so forth and so on. And and believe it or not, that's before launch. So we launched it officially Monday. This was just some preceding. So we think that we're going to have some people earning some pretty serious money basically selling their named product on through our menu. That, that's really interesting because it is a direct link between Domino's, the company, and the customer, isn't it? It's yeah. very personal. It's, it's, we think it's a world first. We've been searching as we've been building this to find anything like it, where a large company actually allows the consumer to create their own product and then sell it and be paid. There's a lot of ideas where things may be you may create your own shoes but then you're not selling them to anybody else. You're not making any money. They're a personal thing or there's competitions where the best hamburger might be the one that gets sold through a, a, for a national business. But there's nothing where – I mean, picture already, we've got over 6,000 people that have registered already and we've got more than 12,000 pizzas inside Mogul already. And, you know, I think within a year we'll have over 100,000 pizzas inside Mogul, which is already the world's biggest pizza menu. It's got a, a, a kilojoule counter, so it's also got the world's healthiest pizza menu in there because it categorizes as soon as you hit a certain calorie count um, it gets put in an area um, it's a search engine it's a social network and it really is what we think is the world's first me tailor so we were a retailer that became an e-tailer and now we're going to become a me tailor where we're really putting our company in the hands of our customers so now you're in japan culture would change things so, you know do you cater to a different yes taste yeah we do and and that's exactly right because we're entrepreneurs that are trying to sell uh pizzas against other Japanese um, purveyors of, of fast food and so our competitors are um, in the market, they're not external as such and and therefore, yeah our product is very Japanese, we sell a lot of quattro pizza, quattro being four types of pizza on one pizza even if it's only uh, 10 inches in size it's got four variations um, Kobe beef, a lot of seafood um, yeah, very very different tastes. Now, with your social media, do you, do you actually have people working full time in that area? We do. We actually have a 24-hour media monitoring. So we, our internal policy is that we'd like to be able to reply to every bit of feedback within 30 minutes, 24 hours a day. And I say within 30 minutes because hopefully we're replying within minutes, um, depending on how busy we are during you know, the rush and so on and when feedback's flowing in. And the most important thing for us is if you never lose a customer, your sales can only go up. And so if you picture that, we're obsessed with trying to get you to give you a, a you know, give us your feedback, especially if you're unhappy in any way. I mean, when you're selling over 100 million products a year in Australia alone, you know we're going to get it wrong from time to time. You know, that's there's a this is all handmade, all human delivered, um, created, and therefore sometimes we're going to get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, we need to capture that. And therefore we need to open ourselves and be as transparent as we can. So you want to give us that feedback so we can do something about it. So how do you handle that when a customer is critical? 
So, well, you know, when when somebody's critical, then we want to try to be able to improve the circumstance. So if they've had a bad experience, we're trying to compensate. We're trying to find out where things went wrong, fix it, and make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, if somebody's critical of something more macro, something structural about the business, then we're, we're, we're thanking them for their feedback. We're, we're recording their feedback. And as we start to see trends, which we see as we monitor the, the – literally daily, we get a trend line of what people are saying about our product, our image, our service. Then those trends will often influence something else we're about to do. Do you analyse the – the bespoke pizzas that these people are the mogul named, pizzas the mogul absolutely pizza. that's a pizza mogul is huge and you know one of the other great things on the pizza mogul make line is that the last bane of toppings is actually just a question mark and if you click the question mark you can give us feedback on what we don't sell that should be on our menu um, so this is a company that is putting itself in the hands of the consumers you know years ago I used to take a photo of Colonel Gaddafi being dragged through the streets on his last day and saying and my reference to our team was here's an example of a CEO who just didn't get it that in today's world um, the consumer is really starting to become more and more in control of the business and you need to make sure that you're engaging rather than sitting on the sidelines of those conversations. It's 60% of sales are online and that's obviously climbing. You yes. say some stores are 80%. Do you yes. see it getting to a stage where you won't need a physical store anymore? No, we, we'll actually put more stores on the ground because we are still a bricks and mortar business. We're still kitchens and the closer we can get a kitchen to you, that means we'll get a hotter, fresher pizza accessible to you. The internet for us is a vehicle for you to be able to place an order and for you to be able to track your order and for you to be able to engage with the company but still the pizza is made fresh to order every single time from fresh dough fresh toppings and as a result of that it's really important that we get closer to you so today we've got over 600 locations in australia new zealand and you know that's going to get far beyond 800 locations in australia new zealand um, because the internet's making us more successful more productive and we're going to get closer and closer to the customer and the involvement of your customers in your product is is part of that Process. Absolutely. And and Pizza Mogul is an interesting thing for us. We we build it in such an open platform that we really believe what Pizza Mogul is today on launch and what it will be in a year's time may be very, very different because we're gonna, we've are gonna we built it to evolve around the customer. I'll give you an example. In the first week, one customer created their own webpage, their own pizza company, and the pizzas were being provided by Pizza Mogul. So there they are, a standalone separate company with the products being delivered by Domino's. That's phenomenal. That's a new insight for us. And what that does, of course, is it creates customers that are truly sticky. Well, you're more likely to be loyal for sure if somebody's creating your pizza, you're being paid for it to be sold and you're you're involved in the business. So there is a business model and a business case obviously for Domino's behind this um, that the ultimate business is one that you're engaged in. You're you're basically a shareholder in because you're being paid. And even if you're not, you know, not everybody can earn a lot of money. Let's be honest. Um, for other people, it's just the fact that they've got their favourite pizza registered, and they can just click on it whenever they want, and it's already you know ready to order. Now, final question: What do you see ahead for Domino's? Well, we've, we're going to be opening a lot more stores. You know, we uh, we announce to the market next week on Tuesday, so we'll be updating on how the year just went and what we're doing into the future, and that will include a lot more stores. Um, it's going to involve a lot more technology. It's going to um, include a lot more product innovation, continuing around better for you structure of our product. So you know, we really believe in making our pizza tastier, but also better for you as it goes. Um, you know, a wider menu. Um, we're going to be introducing more and more side items and 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 some other things other than pizza to our menu. Um, and our stores are going to get more and more interesting as they we we have what we call um, we call it inside the entice model, which means we we build a theatre where you can see us making dough and making pizzas fresh, and it's it's, it's everything's transparent and and it entices the senses of what pizza can be about. Don Mage, thank you very much. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Don's a very um, focused man, isn't he? Absolutely. And Domino's, as you say, come from virtually nowhere, dominates the pizza 
industry in, in this country and is doing very well in Japan. So now Francis Gray. Francis Gray, the, uh, there's increasing issues about China's claim to the South China Sea and uh, what implications does that have for the economy and uh, is that a danger point? Well, Leon, I think the East Asian situation is the biggest threat to the world economy and to global peace that we've seen in a long time. And the reason is because China, I think, has made very clear moves for some reasons that are not clear to claim the South China Sea for their own. And Japan cannot take that uh, line down. The West cannot take it lying down. The United States has already signaled that they are not going to accept it. So there's uh, essentially a danger that the, the um, two biggest economies of the world, in fact, the three biggest economies of the world, run into a head-on collision in the South China Sea. Where do you see this developing? How do you see this developing now? I think that the West is in a scramble to figure out what China is doing and why it's doing it. The moves that China has made over the South China Sea have been very aggressive and unexpected. So normally at sea between opposing powers, there's protocols that go on between the opposing forces. In this case, the Chinese have been breaking them by saying, firstly, that the sea is ours and it's our area and you must apply for uh, permission to travel into this area. Now, the only place you need to apply for permission to travel into on any ocean is a 12-mile nautical limit, not the 200-mile economic zone. That that's what China is claiming, way you know, out to the 200-mile economic zone. The United States, Japan, and the rest of the world cannot stand by and allow that to happen. So we have to stand up. So the and the China would understand this. The question is, why have certain parts of the Chinese um, power system decided to challenge at this point? Why do you think? I I wonder if there's a power struggle going on in China that is some, in some way motivating this particular demonstration of, um, of authority. There's also, I think, a growing sense of confidence in China. So when a new power grows up, and China is an old power grown new again through this last um, 40 years of economic development, they, when those powers grow up, they tend to handle that power um, with, um, not the, without the deafness and skill that's required. Francis, do you think there's a possibility that the Chinese are using the um, anti-Japanese sentiment in China that's historically so, but also to try and uh, blunt, maybe disquiet within the country, within China? There is a danger of that, the Argentinian uh, approach, you know, to start a war whenever the, the natives are getting restless, and uh, that is a possibility. I, I don't know how restless the Chinese population are. I don't get the impression that they're as restless as you would say expect. The economy is obviously at a slow point, um, as we've discussed previously, but I, I don't see that degree of restlessness. But uh, And what, what we're seeing in, in the South China Sea is actually uh, military units uh, engaging, and it's not just with Japan, so it's all across with the Philippines, uh, with Vietnam, and now even Malaysia's getting concerned. It tells you that they're picking up some chatter on the network that they need to stand up and be counted in terms of this, this issue. So I think there's a, like a, a policy um, change, a policy uh, twist that's going on in, in China here that says that this is uh, an issue that for some reason they need to push it now. How do you see this affecting the global economy? I, I think it has massive implications of the global economy because the epicenter of the global economy is moving into the South China Sea. I mean, with Japan and China and the US and the, uh, and the, and the Asian economies that have basically held us up over the last um, six years of a great recession, the, um, you know, the, the idea that these guys might, may actually go to war 
and shoot each other um, ought to terrify all of us because wars are incredibly expensive, but the, the impact on global trade is, is, is a big issue. There are interesting parallels here, aren't there, with uh, Germany in the before the First World War, aren't there? Oh, I think that there are interesting parallels here. Germany, as a as a nation, suffers from the view of too um too small for, too big for Europe, too small for the world. Now, a sense that they should actually have a much bigger place in the world, and they've had that. Uh, view from probably over 200 years and there's been various incarnations of it some of which have been very costly for the world china has the same view that it is uh you know a big player in the world and wants to be taken seriously uh the question is how they're going to express that uh in the world now in my view it's in their long-term interest to have a peaceful world to have a trading world that is their their their, their goal and china that ought to be their goal I've always thought that was their goal in terms of where their sort of 50-year planning horizon was. They have a 50-year planning horizon of matching the United States in, or, or even beating the United States in terms of economic power and, and weight in the world. So they're still a long way off that particular target, but they're getting there. I would have thought it was too early to assert authority like that over the South China Sea. And, and maybe this is a good opportunity for everybody to learn an important lesson about how we're going to get on in the latter half of the 21st century, in that we'll have a world of jostling powers, arms to the teeth, but it all depends on global trade and economic inter- interdependence. But is there a possibility of, say, the West using its economic muscle on China to effect a change? I think the, the the West will may have to consider that option, but I don't think they want to because the the damage, unlike Russia, which is a bit player in the in the game, uh, that is a, that is such a huge step um, with such vast implications. I don't think that um, no the West is going to want to go there very soon. But, but that's why it's worth watching what the Americans are doing. So as part of your observation of this process, you know, what have the Americans been saying? They've been saying, we will station more planes in East Asia. We will fly them deliberately through the, through the South China Sea identification zone. We will trail our coats through that area and see who wants to fight. That's basically what they're saying. And somewhere in there, there's got to be a stand down from this, a, a face, face-saving stand down for China out of this process. I'm not quite sure what that looks like, but I don't think the world's paying enough attention to it. And I think that hopefully we'll go through that before we get to the economic sanctions part of it. The interesting contrast, too, is between the Chinese economy and the Japanese economy. I mean, the Chinese economy is powering along and the Japanese economy is, at various points, has been contracting. Uh, what's your view about that? I think this is a, a fascinating historic parallel. Uh, the, what is happening in Japan, I think, with Shinzo Abe, the, the nationalist prime minister, and I emphasize his nationalism in, his, you know, in Japan should be strong, is they look over the Sea of Japan and they see China getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they come to the understanding that they need to get bigger as well and actually start to grow their economy. So in some senses, the rise of China have, has shaken Japan out of its sort of uh, stupor that it's been in the 20-year the recession that they've, they've been on. And, and, a def, and an effort through Japan, through um, Abenomic, to try and jumpstart the Japanese economy finally after 20 years, which is a significant event in, in world economic policy, I might add, and well worth watching also as a marker of, of the success of our own policies in the Western world in terms of quantitative easing and so on. But that competition between Japan, Japan and China is 
is a key part of, of our future. And, and there's a historic parallel now in Europe. Europe grew up and grew strong because major powers competed with each other militarily and economically. None could dominate and they all forced each other along over centuries and, and drove the rate of economic growth up. Japan, China, East Asia is now a similar incubator. If nothing is done, what impact do you see that having on the global economy? Well, it, the, the bad news is, it, is that if a conflict gets out of hand, um, the economy, I think the world economy will crash. So we're in sort of Great Depression territory here. Uh, because of the, the, the critical role of China. The good news is, if they can manage this, this crisis and show they can manage it in a way we used to manage Cold War crises of, say, of a similar nature, then the world economy may actually boom because each of those countries in Asia now understands that they are in an economic and military race for their survival with, with China on, on their doorstep. And China understands it's in the same game. So China must understand the consequences, and one of the dangers could be that they'll push it so far that to pull back would lose face, and then we're in real trouble, aren't we? Well, I think they've already pushed it that far. They've claimed South, the South China Sea as their own. I mean, what do you do? do you, what do you walk away? How do you walk, walk away from that? How do you back down from that? You know, you say, oh, well, we made a mistake on the map. I hope they find something so they can back down from it. But I think that's a strategic error because there is no way the United States or any other Western power will ev or any other power will ever accept that you can just claim you no know, expanses of ocean to yourself willy-nilly. So basically... Our economies now depend on China and the rest of the world getting their act together, and this is a space to watch. This is a space to watch. Francis Gray, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. I have to see Francis's point, but by gum, it's all a bit scary, isn't it? It certainly is. It's a bit of a worry. China's sort of brinkmanship. And so now, Leon, the news. What's on the list? What's happening in this troubled world? Well, uh, to China, of course, and the world's second biggest economy and activity in their manufacturing sector actually beat expectations in September to hit a two-month high. According to the HSBC fleet, HSBC Flash China Manufacturing Purchase and Managers Index, it rose to 50.5 in September. That's up from 50.2. And that's a sign that the Chinese economy is coming back, Gary. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. There's still a lot of worry about China, particularly in their, their property market and their shadow banking. But in terms of manufacturing, they're doing okay. Good signs out of the US, Gary. Uh, sales of new homes in the US surged in August, led by a wave of buying in the West and Northeast. The Commerce Department said new home sales climbed 18% to a seasonally adjusted 504,000. And newly constructed homes sold at the fastest clip since May 2008, just before the Great Recession. Yeah, that's good stuff. Activity in the Eurozone's private sector slowed again in September, indicating it's unlikely to emerge soon from economic stagnation. Now, data firm Markets Monthly Composite Purchasing Managers Index, uh, which measures activity in manufacturing and services, uh, fell to 52.3. That's down from 52.5. And that's the lowest level in 2014 to date. And meanwhile, German business confidence has crashed to its lowest level in more than a year. And that suggests Europe's biggest economy is unlikely to return to strong growth as it scrambles to rebound from an economic contraction in the second quarter. And the league indicated in the EFO survey fell to 104.7 in September. That's down from 106.3 in August. That's the lowest level since August last year. Yeah, there's some suggestion that the German economy needs reform, that it's a bit moribund. Wages are low. They're doing things the way they did them 20 years ago. Interestingly enough, uh, the World Bank, uh, with the UN climate 
change summit going on. The World Bank says there's strong support from countries and businesses worldwide for carbon pricing schemes to cut greenhouse gas emissions. They've cited 73 countries and nearly two dozen states and cities, representing more than half the world's economy, endorsing putting a price on carbon emission. Now, the list includes leading economies like China, France, Germany, Indonesia, Russia. It doesn't include America. It's pointed out that several US states and cities are on the list, and Barack Obama's a supporter, and also missing a large US oil companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron, and ConocoPhillips. And Australia was missing from the list too, Gary, I might add, but because yeah. Australia got rid of its carbon price. We can understand the oil companies being against it, but uh, you know the Australian decision is really a bit weird. It is, it is. Now, interestingly enough, the IPO of China's biggest e-commerce outfit, Alibaba, has become the world's biggest ever, and it's risen to $25 billion. And what's interesting is they're launching it on New York Stock Exchange. That's right. The Agricultural Bank of China previously held the world record with $22.1 billion. That was back in 2010. Well, well, Jack Ma's come a long way, hasn't he? Uh, from being a an English teacher in a small Chinese school in Hongzhou and made redundant. And you interviewed him, didn't you? I did indeed. I met him in, in Hongzhou at the uh, Alibaba campus, which incidentally was, uh, they hired a, a, an Adelaide architect to design it. Really? Very space age. Terrific place. Uh, it's smarter than the Googleplex in wow. uh, in California. Wow. Well, Alibaba's going long directions, isn't it? Well, just think, Jack Ma would now be, after the IPO's paid, would now be one of the richest men in China, if not the world. Yes, he would be. A lot richer than Gina. <laughs> yes, yes, he would be. Treasurer Joe Hockey says the G20 finance ministers are 90% of the way towards meeting a 2% target for additional global growth, with more than 900 policy initiatives agreed to last weekend that it's going to make the world $2 trillion bigger over the next four years. And Hockey's also trumpeting plans to push ahead with a new global infrastructure initiative to reform the world's financial system and to improve global tax rules and close loopholes being exploited by multinational companies. Good luck to Joe. Meanwhile, the IMF has actually put out a note for the G20 ministers and it's put the GST, resource rent tax, and taxes on housing at the top of its priorities for, for tax reform. Now, we did get rid of the resource tax. A GST, they're locked in at a certain rate. But the IMF's tax policy comes as the Abbott government prepares to outline how it's going to conduct its own tax review, leading to the tax reform white paper expected next year. Yeah, and I think the message from the people is hands off the GST. We, there was a big uh, competition policy review during the week. It found a gap in Australia's competition framework. The review proposes scrapping the National Competition Council, replacing it with a new independent national body, the Australian Council for Competition Policy, which will be established and funded by the states, which will recommend regulation changes to the Australian Competition Consumer Commission. And they say the ACCC should retain both competition and consumer functions. But the interesting thing about the report put together by economist Ian Harper is that it recommends restrictions on ownership and locations of pharmacies be removed. Yeah, which means the supermarkets will get in the business. Woolworths has shown signs of wanting to leverage its market power to move into the pharmacy game once protections are listed. Deregulation of the pharmacy sector is likely to spur a wave of acquisition. It's worth $16 billion and it's been protected from supermarket competition. Yeah, that's right. So the organisations like the cheap chemists, uh, which are doing gangbuster business, could get into that. With the supermarkets, the British supermarkets, Tesco's, for example, that's right. have pharmacies on, on board. Tesco does a brilliant job of that too. Absolutely. The competition reviews also recommended deregulating retail trading hours, and it says full deregulation is overdue and restrictions should be removed as soon as possible. And it also says online shopping is already undermining restrictions on retail trading hours anyway, because people can do it anytime. 
Yeah, for the retailer, of course, it represents a bit of a problem because it's going to increase his wages bill. Well, it's it's something to watch. And meanwhile, uh, the latest Dun & Bradstreet survey finds Australians are much more under much more financial stress. The cost of living going up, wages aren't rising as much. Consumers are feeling the strain of high household debt, debt, weak wages growth and fragile sentiment. And the index, the financial stress index, is expected to reach 25.3 points by the end of September. That's up from 18.4 in June. But at the same time, consumer confidence is going from strength to strength um, and it's boosted by rising property prices. Uh, confidence rose 1.4% to 112.9, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Survey. So consumers have shaken off the negative sentiment from the federal budget. And there's good news for job seekers. According to the uh, hire recruitment firm Hudson, a survey of almost 4,000 Australian employers found that one in four are looking to increase their headcount in 2014. That's very good news because they've got a lot of job losses as well. Well, yeah, because, you know, at the same time, BHP Billet and Mitsubishi Alliance announced this week that 700 jobs would be axed from its Bowen Basin coal mines in central Queensland because of tough market conditions and low prices. And Fletcher, Price, Fletcher Building is cutting 108 jobs and closing its Penrith Crane Copper Tube site at Sedexit's Copper Tube Manufacturing Business in Australia. And of course, the mining industry in general is reaching the end of its investment cycle, and that's going to cost a lot of jobs. Another worry, too, is about those house prices. The Reserve Bank has, is actually warning about the housing property market in Sydney and Melbourne. It's using a financial stability review to draw attention to what it's called an unbalanced housing property market, and it's going to put the bigger economy at risk and potentially threaten the financial services sector via commercial property, like offices, where there's a lot of vacancies. Yeah, there's a lot of vacancies in them, and there's a lot of vacancies in uh, tower apartment blocks that are mostly Chinese-funded. And it's expressed concern about soaring housing prices, rapidly growing investor activity, warning it could pose risk to the economy. It's raised questions about whether lending practices across a banking industry are conservative enough to meet this combination of low interest rates, strong housing price growth, and higher household indebtedness. Yeah, what do you reckon, Leon? I reckon it's, we're going to see some interest rate rises. Well, I think yeah, I think so. Well, next year, but I think at the moment the uh, if the Reserve Bank is actually quite worried about the property market. Yeah, well, Glenn Stevens came out very strongly on it, and so that's going to be a space to watch. Meanwhile, according to the Commonwealth uh, Bank Business Sales Indicator, economy-wide spending has entered its fourth straight year of growth. Although some sectors are struggling with unseasonably warm weather and the mining investments wind down, the Business Sales Indicator, which which tracks credit and debit card transactions on CBA machines, found that financial service providers recorded the strongest sales in August, but closing stores and utilities suffered fall sales because of unseasonably warm winter weather. And sales across most states and territories, except for the ACT, were, were fine. Sales growth remains subdued in Western Australia as the state copes with a wind-down mining investment. The other worrying thing, finally, Gary, is about the price of iron ore. It's sunk to a five-year low. It's now below $80. Yeah, it was trading around about seventy nine forty last I checked. This is getting very close to the cost of uh, production, even even for BHP and uh, Rio. It says rising supply seen driving the floor with flat demand in China, resulting in a persistent oversupply that's not going to resolve itself for a considerable period. And the Bureau of Resources and Energy Economics expected the iron ore price will average around ninety four dollars a ton for the rest of two thousand fourteen. It's already well below that, below eighty. But they had forecast back in June it was going to be one hundred and seven. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great. Leon, that's terrific, and uh, we'll be back next week.
week. That's right. Next week, we'll be back with a great interview with Simon Hackett. He founded uh, Internode and uh, he sold out to IINet for $107 million. And he's now set up um, really what amounts to a tech incubator in Adelaide. And that's very interesting. And he's really interesting about innovation. So it'll be good to talk to him. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.